It's time for your local weekly analysis, Slow County Public Policy and the Law, with your host, Stu Jenkins. The Union Forever, hurrah, boys, hurrah, down with the traitor. Welcome to Slow County Public Policy and the Law every Saturday on KNews 98.5. We open a window into local San Luis County and state public policy, policymakers, and the law affecting you. I'm your host, Stu Jenkins. I've practiced election law in San Luis Obispo County since 1978, appearing in court for the Democratic Party and Republican office holders. It has been my privilege to serve as Superior Court Special Master. Between elections, I help folks with estate planning and real estate law. Last week, we interviewed former general counsel for the California Republican Party. Chuck Bell talked about the San Luis Obispo County Board of Supervisors and their engagement now in a mid-decade redistricting of the supervisorial districts in spite of the Fair Maps Act. In this hour, I am pleased and honored to chat with another expert in election law, Dr. Rick Hassan, about a landmark case that he helped decide in the California Appellate Court that would have prevented the legislature from making big companies provide the right to organize labor unions by gig workers and much more. Rick Hassan has a BA degree from UC Berkeley, a Juris Doctorate, Master's and PhD degree in political science, at UCLA. Rick Hassan has served as an election law analyst for CNN and for NBC News and MSNBC. He directs the UCLA Law Safeguarding Democracy Project. The American Bar Association has named the often quoted election law blog, which Rick Hassan publishes daily as being in the Blog 100 Hall of Fame. Welcome to the show, Rick. Great to be with you. Um, as soon as you let everyone who follows the election law blog know that California's first district court of appeals had adopted your amicus arguments overturning part of Proposition 22 in Castaneos versus California, I was anxious to have you on the show to talk about that case and California's initiative process. And we will do that, but so much has happened in the last two weeks in election law that I was hoping we could get your brief analysis of the last several blockbuster events that have happened. Uh, for instance, uh, the Fox Corporation settlement with Dominion Voting Systems. How did you think that came about? Well, I think that there was so much that came out in discovery that was quite uh, damaging to Fox's reputation. It was clear that not only was Fox News putting stuff on the air uh, that um, was false about the, how the 2020 election was conducted, uh, they knew it was false. And the standard we have, thanks to the First Amendment, uh, when defamation cases are brought, is very high. You've got to prove what's called actual malice. You have to prove that someone's made a false statement knowing it was false or with reckless disregard as to whether it was true or false. The judge before trial had already ruled that... The, the election wasn't stolen, that um, Fox's statements about Dominion voting machines being used to manipulate uh, election outcomes was false. And so it was really only going to turn on the question of, of what, 
Fox executives knew and when they knew it. I think the prospect of putting Rupert Murdoch and Sean Hannity on the stand was was uh, too much, and they were willing to pay over $787 million to avoid that fate. And I suppose with the lawyers that they were paying to defend themselves, they probably paid over a billion dollars. It was a lot of money that they spent, and, um, you know, what it takes to calculate that you don't want to go to trial, uh, you know, given all of this, uh, you know, it must have been uh, uh, seen as quite a risk for them. We don't know how much money of that was paid by uh, insurance companies. And importantly, I think the um, uh, a settlement did not require Fox to apologize on the air. And so many of Fox's viewers who heard this false information are not going to get an apology or, or any kind of um, major statement on Fox about what uh, Fox did. And so, you know, that is, uh, it shows you, uh, as I wrote in a piece uh, recently in Slate, that defamation suits can only go so far in trying to uh, get people to understand the truth about how our elections are run. And, and people who expected that this was going to be a major turning point in uh, the false claims of uh, a stolen 2020 election, I think, were mistaken. Was it... Uh is it true that in the uh, uh, court that was handling this case that the judge had entertained summary judgment motions from uh, both Fox and from Dominion in which uh, the judge received evidence concerning the truth or falseness of the statements about uh, votes being stolen? Sure. So there were cross motions for summary judgment, meaning both sides was arguing that at least on parts of the issues in the case, there was uh, evidence that was so one-sided that it could only lead to one conclusion. And that's when the judge drew the conclusion that um, claims that Dominion voting machines were used to steal the election for Biden were false. And so that was not an issue. And um, the, uh, the judge also made a very important legal ruling. One of the ways that Fox was going to try to defend itself was by saying that, the, um, that it was just covering this as news. This was a newsworthy event. It wasn't taking a position one way or the other. And the judge... Uh, uh, did not accept that. And Fox was not going to be able to make that argument. It was not going to be able to wrap itself in the First Amendment and, and claim that it was engaged in journalism. And so there really were very limited issues that were going to be tried before a jury. And, and I imagine some of that would have been punitives. Right. Well, even before that, there were questions of how much actual damages the Dominion uh, company suffered. Mm -hmm. uh, the amount of the settlement seems to be worth much more than the company itself. So that does suggest that the possibility of punitive damages uh, could have been on the table uh, as well. Well, thank you for uh, giving us uh, that analysis. Uh, folks, you're listening, listening to election law expert, internationally renowned election law expert, Rick Hasen. Uh, last week, we had the former uh, general counsel for the California Republican Party on uh, to talk about redistricting that's occurring in the county of San Luis Obispo, mid-decade. Um, but what I wanted to talk to uh, Rick Hassan Has about concerns a recent victory that he had as an amicus uh, in a case that challenged uh, Proposition 22. Uh, that was the uh, proposition that was on the 2020 ballot that overturned some statutes that allowed the legislature to provide uh, 
workers' compensation and other protections for gig workers. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the, uh, that case and, and, and fold in the way initiatives work, uh, Rick? Sure. So uh, the um, California legislature had been uh, engaged in some uh, legislation around uh, how to uh, regulate uh, the gig economy in California, things like uh, Uber and Lyft and DoorDash. Uh, those people who um, work with these companies, um, they are not uh, necessarily going to be treated as employees, and that matters for purposes of things like workers' compensation and all of that. And so in order to forestall uh, legislation from the California legislature that might have uh, regulated these uh, industries more heavily, uh, the companies like uh, Uber and, and Lyft and DoorDash invested millions of dollars to try to pass, and they successfully did pass, a ballot proposition that essentially requires treating these uh, gig workers, the people who drive for Uber or DoorDash, uh, and, and similar kinds of uh, people in these businesses as independent contractors so, that, so they don't get some of those same protections like for worker, workers' comp protection that an ordinary employee would get at a job. And it, it, the, uh, the statute had also provided that they had to be paid minimum wage uh, as well, didn't it? Right. And so this was, you know, a way to um, take the, the, you know, the, the protections, some of the protections that were already contained in California law and take them away from these workers. It, it was seen as a, or it was marketed as a way of, giving uh, these workers more freedom, but uh, I think many people on the, on the labor side of things saw this as actually taking away many of the rights that these uh, uh, workers uh, otherwise would have been entitled to under California law. Sure. And for folks listening, the case is Castellanos versus State of California. It was decided by the uh, Court of Appeal March 13th, 2023. And, and Rick, I I noticed uh, there are hundreds, literally hundreds of people um, who came in on both sides of the case, sometimes as parties, sometimes as amicus. You came in as an amicus, and uh, could you tell folks what that is? Sure. So uh, when a case goes up, typically on appeal, uh, in addition to getting briefing from the parties, uh, the, the, the plaintiff and the defendant in the case, the ones who have legal standing to bring the case, uh, it, it's common for those people who uh, have an interest uh, in the issue in the case or who have certain kinds of expertise or experience to offer uh, what's called a friend of the court brief or an amicus brief that raises a, you know, particular legal issues, brings them to the attention of the courts, and then uh, the court can take that information into account when they uh, decide uh, how they're going to resolve the case. I noticed you appear to have been with the public counsel uh, for the California election law professors in the amicus. Is that, is that right? Right. So uh, I joined with two other law professors uh, who teach election law in California, Fernita Tolson at USC and Joey Fishkin of UCLA. And we, along with public counsel, filed an amicus brief uh, addressing one of the three issues in the case. And that and was the uh, only issue that the 
California uh, Court of Appeal decided in, uh, in favor of those who were challenging Proposition 22. Well, and what struck me about this was uh, it was almost uh, one of the most undemocratic uh, with a small d democratic uh, features of prop the proposition I'd ever seen. It required a seven-eighths vote of the California legislature to amend any portion of the proposition. Well, that part is still in the law, unfortunately. So it's it's a little bit technically complex. But uh, if you give me a moment, I can try to explain what the, what the uh, measure did that the court said was in, uh, impermissible. You know, I, I would love that. It seemed to me, reading the uh, reading through the case, that there were at least three parts of the California state constitution that were in play. Yeah. So the the main issue in the case was one that the. Um, that the uh, challengers lost. Uh, they were arguing that only the state legislature, rather than the voters through the initiative process, can pass laws that deal with workers' comp. Okay. So that, that part, uh, the, the challengers lost, and they may well take that to the California Supreme Court and uh, challenge that further. Um, but the, there was a part in the amendment, a part in the a proposition that dealt with amendments. And so here I need to explain that when voters pass an initiative, uh, generally uh, under the California Constitution, uh, the, the initiative can't be amended uh, by the state legislature. Right. Uh, because otherwise, uh, the legislature could simply undo what an initiative does. Uh, but it's often co common to uh, say that the uh, legislature could pass additional legislation that might be consistent with the initiative, you know, when, when other problems come up. Um, this one, as you mentioned, said that... Um, if you want to pass something that might be consistent with the initiative, uh, you have to get a seven-eighths vote to pass it, which is a practically impossible standard. It's almost like the standard that uh, poor Poland had uh, before World War II. Well, you know, it, it's, it's not much of a... Uh, it's basically requiring a unanimous vote, which is hard to get in any uh, yeah. body. Um, uh, but the part that we uh, went after was a provision that said, you know, even if you got a seven-eighths vote, you could not amend the measure to, the, the legislature could not amend the measure to allow these gig workers to engage in collective bargaining. Ah. And we argued that this was kind of like a bait and switch because the measure was not about collective bargaining. It mentioned other things related to gig workers and you know, whether they are entitled to workers' comp. It didn't say anything. And so we basically said this was like um, uh, a, a kind of measure that was taking the power away from the legislature. It's saying, we're going to legislate on issue number one, and legislature, you can't pass legislation on issue number two. And we said that kind of structure, we've not seen that in any other California initiative. We went back over, I think it was 15 years, and looked at all the initiatives and couldn't find anything like this. And the, uh, the Court of Appeal agreed that this kind of structure was unconstitutional, and uh, assuming that this is not reversed by the California Supreme Court in some further appeal, this means that the legislature could come in and give gig workers the right to organize collectively. And, and that would be an important power because then if they can be together as workers, they would have a stronger bargaining position if they wanted to bargain over, say, working conditions. Certainly, certainly. And uh, that now, was, uh, was the basis for that the single subject rule, or was it some other basis uh, in the Constitution that... Uh, the court uh, determined the matter on? It was not a single subject uh, claim. Okay. The single subject claim says that uh, an initiative can't be about more than one subject. Right. And, uh, you know, the devil's in the details there as to what counts as a subject. 
here, um, you know, we weren't arguing that you couldn't have included some rules related to collective bargaining in the same measure. That could maybe, you know, we didn't express an opinion, but maybe that could satisfy the single subject rule. What we said was that it violated a different part of the Constitution, which gives the legislature the power to pass legislation about anything that is not already being uh, subject to a uh, contrary piece of legislation passed by the voters through initiative. That is, the initiative process only extends as far as voters uh, vote to legislate in a particular area. So while the legislature um, generally can legislate, it can't, for example, go against uh, what's said directly in Proposition 22 without uh, being consistent with Prop 22 and having a 7-8 vote. But the legislature under the state constitution does have the power to pass uh, legislation on other topics. And so in this case, the legislature would be free to pass legislation on something not covered in Prop 22, which is whether workers could have collective bargaining rights. Well, very good. Well, that's uh, that's yeoman's work that you've done in the courts, uh, Rick, and uh, we appreciate it. They, uh, do you foresee any uh, significant other... Well, how do you think the case will come out if it goes to the state Supreme Court? Well, I think we had a very strong argument on this point. I wasn't able to attend oral argument, but I understand the the, uh, the appeals court justices were, were quite interested in it. They, they actually found that not only did this violate uh, the rights of the legislature to pass legislation, which was the argument that we made, yes. but also that it violated the rights of the courts to decide what counts as an amendment. That was an argument that the challengers to the law made. And so there would be a, both of those arguments were seen as sufficient. Um, I would hope that if that issue does get to the California legislature, that the California Supreme Court, I'm sorry, if it does get to the California Supreme Court, that the California Supreme Court would agree with our position. But, you know, we'll wait and see uh, what happens if there are petitions for review and what they look like. Under, under the uh, California Constitution, the legislature has some control over the jurisdiction of what courts can hear. Um, and I suppose the argument by the folks who pushed through Prop 22 was that the voters had a similar power over jurisdiction of what the courts could hear. Is that, is that what I'm uh, gathering from this? Well, so that's not how well, the supporters of Proposition 22 defended what they did. In fact, what they did was say, well, this was just um, advisory. They called it precatory. Uh, <laughs> that's just fancy lawyering talk for we're just giving you a suggestion. Well, that's, that's what we use in, uh, in estate planning frequently, yes. And the court said, uh, you know, that there's no point in a, a piece of, of legislation, which is what Proposition 22 is, to give suggestions to, 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 the, to the state court. So, so either has no power, uh -huh. uh, in which case it's, it could be ignored, or it violates the state constitution. Uh, so so that, that uh, argument didn't, didn't get very far uh, with the uh, justices on the Court of Appeal. Well, that's fascinating, Rick, and uh, I want to thank you for your service uh, doing that. This is a good example of lawyers uh, coming out and doing things in the public interest, folks. You're, li you're listening to a discussion with Rick, Rick Hassan, who is an internationally renowned election law lawyer who teaches at UCLA. Um, Rick, I, I thought before we close up, I wanted to kind of return to some of the recent events that have been in your blog. Um, folks can go look for the election law blog that uh, Rick uh, puts out 
on a daily basis that covers things from all over the country, um, from federal courts to state court actions and legislative actions. Um, one of the things you had on today's blog that I thought was a, would be of interest to our listeners was that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, uh, I, I like this headline, angrily sanctioned county for violating order on Dominion voting machines. Um, can you tell the listeners a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I only know very little about that. It just happens. And sometimes I link to issues on my blog that I'm not closely following. So what well, I can tell you there is that around the country, uh-huh. uh, there have been, you know, as part of this unfortunate wave of elections and nihilism, there have been not just um, you know, ordinary people who believe that the 2020 election was stolen, but also people in power, um, such as county boards of elections or county supervisors. Uh, we have this uh, similar situation in Shasta County, you know, in the far north of California, where they're going to get rid of their Dominion voting machines uh, because of beliefs and conspiracy theories, what they're hearing from the My Pillow guy, Mike Lindell. Uh, and so what happened in Pennsylvania is one of these counties, um, uh, despite uh, order from the state Supreme Court, allowed for private individuals to look at the uh, code behind the software that's used for these balloting machines. And uh, this was uh, uh, in contempt of the court, and uh, so the court was quite angry. Uh, it was a unanimous opinion, uh, even uh, uh, even though the court often splits, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court often splits along party lines on election issues. Uh, it did not in this case. The justices uh, in their votes were unanimous in uh, finding that the the county was, was violating uh, its order. And so it, it's just um, an unfortunate symptom of the world that we're living in uh, right now. Well, it is. And, you know, it's, uh, it's always been my position as a little country lawyer that it's important to educate the local superior court judges just like the uh, Supreme Court justices. But, folks, we've been so happy to have Rick Hassan with us. Thank him for being with us. I hope you'll come back, Rick. I sure will. All right. Thanks.